right. Good morning, everybody. Amen. Hey, before I get started, I just want to add my two cents in on the youth uh, meetings on Sunday nights because um, as pastor, founding pastor, I've been here a long time, watched our youth over the years, and when they were the best is when we did Sunday night services. And years ago, we had a youth revival breakout in our church in, in the early 2000s to the point where we had meetings four nights a week for six months with teenagers. Come on, somebody. And we had no, at that time, we were not in this building. This was, this was before we were in this building. And we had a warehouse that we were renting right down the street. Now we own the warehouse, but at that time it was a warehouse. No air conditioning, no heat. In the middle of the summer, we just put up some black tarp, and hundreds of teenagers were coming every Sunday night for six months, four nights a week. So when I hear parents moan and groan about trying to get their children out on Sunday night, well, it's just too hard, you know, Sunday night, blah, blah, blah. What is up with that? (laughs) What kind of parents talks like that? If you're a parent, you are parenting your children on purpose and I, my daughter did not have an option when she was in our house. As for me and my house, we are serving the Lord, which means when there's youth group, you are in it. It, it don't matter what you got homework or whatever. This is a vital part. We, you know, you go, we send you to school where you're just around a whole kinds of carnality all day long. We got to get you some friends in, that are Christian, that love God, that you can fellowship with outside of the church so that you're not constantly being bombarded with peer pressure from the unsaved world. Amen? So I just want to encourage you, if you have a teenager, they need to be here tonight at 5 o'clock. And no moaning and groaning. Get in your car and bring them here if, you don't, if they don't drive them themselves. Amen? And, and th- we had over 900 students at our student conference and 200 on Sunday night. We need to have 900 on Sunday night. That's where, that's where we need to have on Sunday night. Every teenager needs to invent right the front. We need to believe God for a youth revival, an awakening in our young people. Amen? So I just thought I'd throw those, those comments in there. All right. So we're in a family series. We're calling this Family on Purpose, and we're at this point now, kind of an inflection point, where we're going to talk about some things that um, maybe you don't always hear about in the family. And today we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about your finances. And so this crosses all the barriers. It doesn't matter if you have a family or don't have a family. You're going to learn something today. If you're a single person, this will be great. If you're a teenager, you'll be great. And I'm going to share with you some of the principles that Kylie and I have learned over all of our years of, of marriage and life. We're, this, this coming April, we'll be celebrating 40 years of marriage. And so uh, you, don't, you, don't, you learn a few things when you've been married that long. Would you all agree with that? And, and, and so we're in this stage of life where now it's, it's, it's kind of giving our life away, giving our money away, giving everything away. We're, we're trying to focus not on getting stuff. We're trying to focus on giving stuff. At the same time, I want to make sure that you understand the principles of how to get there. And, and so, so you may have come here. Maybe this is new. You're new online. You're new in our church. You don't know what kind of church we are when it comes to money. You may be thinking, well, he says money. always oh, going to get some kind of message where he's going to manipulate us into giving some big offering at the end. We are not going to do that. We don't do that. We don't manipulate people to give money. We, we believe in prosperity. We don't believe that you should live in poverty. But we believe there's a process of prosperity called stewardship, not some kind of lottery ticket faith where you give to some televangelist and he prays over your money and you're going to get a hundredfold return. That, that, the only person that gets the hundredfold return is the televangelist. 
just in case you didn't know that. Have you ever got the hundredfold return? Now, when are you gonna wake up and realize that's not the way it does? God is not a lottery ticket God where you give some offering to somebody, they pray some special magic prayer over your offering, and you're gonna get some major uh, uh, blessing of God, even though you've been a bad steward, you're in debt, you don't know how to handle money, but God's gonna give you a whole bunch more. He's not gonna give you money if you can't handle money. He will give you resources if you know how to handle them properly, amen? So you're gonna get a Papa D message this morning on how to handle your resources, amen? So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the next few moments. We're gonna dive into this amazing subject of mammon, of money. And you're gonna help us in the next few moments to learn how to navigate as we go forward with the resources you put in our hands, how to navigate it biblically so that we can grow, increase, and be good with money for the rest of our lives. And I thank you for these things in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. amen. So this past Thursday, we were, I was in a, a meeting with several of our business guys. We do an every other Thursday thing where we just kind of do a little mentoring for some of the business guys, and we're just talking, just dialoguing with each other about what's happening in America, what's happening in the income of America, the financial uh, status of America, and almost everybody, and these are people that are major investors, people who have money, almost every one of us said, it's not the future right now, temporarily future does not look good. The economic future of our nation does not look good. They, they say that during COVID, uh, right before COVID, we were 12.7, we had about $12.7 trillion in consumer debt. And after COVID, or when I say after COVID, as it's died down now the last two years, it's now 15.24%, two, four trillion in consumer debt. Almost two trillion has been added to the consumer debt. We have learned a new way of shopping called online. Amazon has become our best friend. We know the Amazon drivers by face and by name. They know us, right? Every day, there they come. And, and, and they're coming to our house sometimes two and three times a day, dropping off stupid things that we don't need, <laughs> that we found on the internet that we can't live without. And what's happening is, you know, the Bible's very clear, the rich rule over the poor, the borrower is servant to the lender. We understand that the plot of Satan is to get people in debt, in debt so that their life is ruled by money. If you're currently in consumer debt, where that you cannot pay back, that you are struggling to pay back, or you're living paycheck to paycheck, you are currently labeled biblically a slave. It's a slave. You're a slave to the lender. And what I want to help you understand is that God doesn't want you to live as a slave. He wants you to live unenslaved, unbroken free from slavery. We all claim freedom, amen, in Christ Jesus, but then we go out and buy stuff we can't afford. And so, the idea in, in the Bible is he gives us a pattern from the beginning to the end of what God says about money. There is no more talked about subject in the Bible than the subject of money. 2,350 verses on money. Nothing even comes close. Love, faith, none of those things come close. Jesus talked about money in half of every, all the parables. He talked about 16 of the 30, 32 parables. He talked about money in those parables. He talked about it more than any other subject. So that's why when we talk about money, it's a very sensitive issue because most people don't have the rule over it. They don't know how to rule the resources in their hand. They don't know how to rule over money. Money rules over them. And I was that way for, for years as a young person. 
I, I, you know, I knew how to make money, but just because you know how to make money doesn't know, mean you know how to handle money. And so I came across this scripture years ago. I was reading through the Old Testament, and it really was, I'll bet you've never seen this scripture. It's in the book of Haggai. Haggai's a, a, a minor prophet in the Old Testament where he has been given the task by God to get Israel back in, in, in line. They had been blessed by God. They had been given the promised land. They had been promised all these things, and, and God has been blessing them, and now they're taking the blessing, and they're forgetting God. And one of, the, one of the hardest things to do, and get this if you don't get anything else, is to prosper and stay connected to God. Because so, sometimes poverty drives us towards God. Sometimes the best thing that can ever happen to our country is to have a downturn economically because suddenly people start paying attention. I need God now because I don't have any money. As long as I have money, I don't need God. And so they had turned away from God and now they're starting to slowly start to, they're sliding away from God. Haggai, one of the Old Testament prophets, gives them a word and he says, consider your ways. Let's say that together. Consider your ways. So I'm going to say the same thing to you. Consider your ways. And then he tells them what they've done wrong. And then he makes this interesting statement in Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. He said, you've planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. Anybody ever been there before? You, you know, anybody can relate to that? I, I, I can relate to that. I, I, I used to make a lot of money when I was in my 20s, getting out of college. I had a business. I was making good money. But it seemed the more money I made, it just seemed like it was just going through me like a sieve. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It, it just it comes in, and then it goes right back out again. And then I went and got saved. And when I got saved, I started studying the Bible, and I realized the reason why money's not working properly in my life is because I'm not working with money the way the Bible tells me to work with it. I'm, I'm missing the principles. So I started studying the Bible, and I came across this, what I call a life scripture, where Jesus is talking about money. And it's in the book of Luke in chapter 16. If you, can, if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me or, or punch there on your phone with me and Look at Luke chapter 16. This is, the, this is the, probably the, of all the statements that Jesus makes about money, this is the most important one. This is a life scripture. And he starts to talk to the people in, in a parable. And then he says this in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now, in that statement, there are three major thoughts that Jesus is trying to leave with his disciples. Here's the first. This is the truth about money. Number one. The way we handle money when we only have a little will determine how we will handle money if we have a lot. How you handle the little that you have, you say, well, I don't have a lot of money. I'm not quite there yet. I just have a little bit of money. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It's how you handle the money. Because there's plenty of people that have lots of money, but they don't handle it well. 
And so if you handle it well when it's, when it's small, you'll generally handle it well when it's big. But if, you don't, if you're constantly mishandling it when it's small, can I just tell you something? It's highly unlikely you'll ever have money to handle. All right, so he says how you handle it when it's little will determine how you handle it when it's big. Secondly, the way we handle money, now this is a big one, determines the trust level that God has towards your life. He says that. He says, how you handle mammon determines how much I trust you. He doesn't say anything else. He doesn't say anything else determines that. He, the one thing he says that determines my trust for you is how you handle money. I can look at how you handle money, and this is what he's basically saying, and I can, and I can tell you how you're gonna handle life. So I'm gonna trust you based on how well you handle money. Whoa. Tell me about the repercussions of that on your family. And then the third thing he's basically saying is the way we handle money will determine the reality of which God we really serve. It's the number one competitor for our hearts. You cannot serve God and many, mammon or God and money. If you want to know what takes people out of church what breaks up marriages, what ruins kids' lives, what destroys society, it's usually people that don't handle money well. All you have to do is look across society. Look at all the major people that, that run society. Look at the major people that run finances. Look at the Jeff Bezos, the, the Bill Gates, the, the Elon Musk, the wealthiest people in the world, and ask yourself, do you want your life to be like their family? Divorce, broken, multiple relationships, affairs, all those kinds of things. What does it profit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own family? Does that make sense? I would rather have a family with a little and have a good family than have a bunch of money and have a bunch of brokenness in my family. When we're all old and we are ready to pass away, the last thing we're going to think about is how much money we have. We're going to think about the state of our family, our children, our, our marriages, all the different things that we've had to steward down through life. And a lot of it ties into money. And this is why 50% of divorces are over money. They have something to do with financial pressure in the life of a person. All right. So Jesus is giving us these principles and he's trying to get our attention because he knows that if he can get you to handle money well, then you'll handle life well. So I started thinking, okay, what are the principles of the Bible that the Bible teaches you to, to handle money? And in our early days, Colleen and I are just getting married. We don't have any money. We, we were very, we had both decided that money was not that important to us when we were younger. We just wanted God. We just want God. But then we learned that you still need money. <laughs> Thank God for God. We love God. But, you know, if you don't have money, you're limited usually in what you can do and what you can do with your family. And so I so said, how do we handle money? So we, we, we talked it over and we decided, okay, we need to get some counseling. We need to get some guidance. So we went to an older couple in our church. We had a very small church we we're going to. And we said, could you give us some guidance, some wisdom? Isn't it amazing how many young people go to other young people for wisdom? It starts at about 13. 13 year olds go to other 13 year olds for wisdom of how to navigate life. They stop listening to their parents because their parents don't know anything. And certainly the grandparents don't know anything. And they start listening. And that's, that's, the, that's why the Bible talks about 
the state of foolishness that's bound up in the heart of children. Sometimes if it's not driven out of us when we're young, it stays with us all through life. And how many of you know, when we have foolishness in our life, we make foolish decisions. So, so we're, we're foolish with money. We, I made a lot of money, but I spent a lot of money. Colleen didn't make a lot of money, but she still spent a lot of money. <laughs> and, and we started sitting down with this couple, and this couple started taking us through some, some basic principles because we were just newly married. So let me give you the, the five ones that we learned early on. Number one, the first principle is what I call the oneness principle. Now, this is a family principle. The oneness principle is a family principle, and, and it comes out of the very beginning of the Bible where God creates man. So God creates man, he creates woman out of the rib of man, puts him in a garden, and he says, I want you to be a steward over this garden. I want you to walk, tend and keep this garden. I've, everything I've given you, I've given you freely, and I'm gonna, now I just want you to take care of what I've given you. And then he says, but there's one thing in this garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that I have reserved for myself, indicating to me that there are certain principles with God where he has certain things that are reserved only for him, only for him. And so he reserved that for him, but of course mankind disobeyed him, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we see the results of that. But in the process, he makes this statement about creation. He says, therefore, in Genesis 2, 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Just a little emphasis. And be joined to his wife. And a wife shall leave her father and her mother. Do you know I see all kinds of marriages? And the ones I see that are really struggling many times, they have not left their father or their mother. And most of the time it's their mother. They can't leave them. They still, they're still attached and their parents don't want them to leave them. They, want to, they, they don't want them. They don't want their little baby to leave them. They, they gotta call them every day. They gotta talk to them. They gotta advise them what not to do with that person that you're married to now. If you have one of those kind of marriages, Lord help you. We had to leave. We had to realize. Here's what he's saying. Once you get married, now listen to this carefully. Once you get married, all these single people listen to this. Once you get married, the number one relationship, human relationship that you have on the earth is with your spouse. There is no more, there is no more important relationship now than the person you're marrying to. Your children do not take the place of your marriage. And this is what happens to a lot of marriages. They start having kids and now all their attention goes to their kids and they forget about their marriage. Or all their attention goes to their careers or their hobbies or their friends or, or, or something else that distracts them. Your number one relationship, and you're going to learn this next week because we have a marriage conference next week. It's all sold out. It's, it's going to be powerful. And we're going to have Jimmy and Karen Evans. We're going to have Ed and Lisa Young. We're have all kinds of people live in the room talking about marriage. And if you're coming, you're going to really be blessed. You can, I think you can still sign up online. It's a powerful conference. And then he's going to teach, Jimmy's going to teach next Sunday morning. So you do not want to miss the, the marriage uh, weekend, next weekend. But the, uh, the number one thing is you've got to leave your mother, leave your father, and now you come to this person, you're, you're joining yourself to them, and then he says, and once you're joined, they shall become what? One flesh. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 19. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh. So they are no longer two, in case you didn't get it the first time. They're one. 
They're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So what we learned in that principle was that once you get married, everything you have, everything she has or he has becomes one. You do not have separate bank accounts. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) Because some of you have separate bank accounts. Because somebody's seated into you, we just never know. You never know if that person's going to do something funky with money and you're going to have to leave them. You are prepared. If you are preparing for divorce, you will divorce. If divorce is an option, it will happen. You have to enter into marriage where divorce is not an option. So why would I even marry somebody that I might divorce? Or why would I marry somebody that I can't trust with money? Did you hear what I just said? I'm not going to become one with somebody who's, who's not good, with, who can't handle this. So, I'm, so I said, okay, so Colleen, everything you have is mine and everything I have is yours. That includes debt. I'm bringing your student loan debt into this marriage. Your, your hospital debt into this marriage. But that's okay because I know that two are better than one. Two are better than one. We'll figure this thing out. We, if, we, if we wait till we get it all figured out to get married, we'll never get married. But when we get married, we got our bank accounts have our, both of our names on them. And, and, and there's no my bank account, your bank account, my money, your money. You know, we don't have any of that because that's not one. And if you're, not, if you're two and you're not one, you'll have trouble in your family. You'll have trouble with money. Because if you're two and not one, then one of you will always be doing something that the other person doesn't agree with. This is what gets people buying stuff that they hide. <laughs> hide over here. Have you ever had somebody do that and you're married to them and they hide something they bought? I got a little dog I'm training right now. No, I got a little dog. I'm trying to pretend to be house, house, you know, don't go in the bathroom in the house. So I got this little bell. You ring the bell and, and you go outside. And I'm saying, you're a puppy. You go outside. Potty outside. <laughs> well, my little dog no, now knows potty inside is not acceptable in this house. But sometimes when I'm not paying attention, he doesn't, he can't get my attention. So he has to go. So he goes and hides somewhere in an upstairs bedroom in a closet somewhere and deposits his potty. And I don't know it's there until maybe three days later. And I've discovered the prize. That's what I feel if I find something my wife bought and it's hiding in a closet somewhere. Potty outside. To always be one together in your finance. That's why, listen, You don't ever make a major purchase without your spouse's agreement. I want this. Well, I don't. We shouldn't buy this. This is not a wise. There's always usually one of the two that's better with money. You need to let them talk more. (laughs) And when you're buying stuff, it's always going to determine you buy it based on how it's going to affect every other part of your life. So you don't want to buy something because the bank says you can afford it. The bank will tell you stuff you can't, you can afford that God says you shouldn't buy. I never buy something that the bank determines I can afford. Did you hear what I just said? Or I never walk into a car dealership and say, what's the payment? 
As soon as I say, what's the payment? This person in the sales force knows I got them now because I can make the payment anything I want. What do you want the payment to be? <laughs> oh, I can only afford $200. No problem. For 25 years, you're going to be paying $200. <laughs> you're going to pay for that car five times over, but your payment will be $200. And by the way, it's just going to be a lease. You won't own it at the end of this. All right, so oneness. You gotta have one. Gotta be, everybody say one. one. You're one flesh in everything you do. All right, the second thing, the second principle is not only the oneness principle, the second principle is what I call the ownership principle. Now, this was a new one for me. I did not understand this completely until I started this church. When I started this church, when we started this church, we started some classes called Crown Ministries. I think it's now called Money at Work. And they're classes that everybody can go through to learn how to handle their money. And Colleen and I decided, I think it was the third year of the church, we're going to go through these classes. And in the first class, it, is, it deals with this issue called ownership. And, and in the main scripture is over in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And it tells the story of David. As David's on the scene, David at the time was the wealthiest person in the world at the time. He's the king of Israel. He's the wealthiest person. God had blessed him. He had more than anything. And they were in a building program. They were building a temple. His son Solomon was in the process of, of heading up this building of the temple. And they're taking up this big offering. And David sets the tone for it. And he gives $3 billion in this first offering of his gold and silver. The largest at that time known offering in the history of man. And he gives $3 billion dollars. And here's what he says, and this is kind of the, the, the recording of what he says as he's doing this in First Chronicles 29, verse 11. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything, everybody say everything. Everything, everything in the heavens and on earth is whose? Yours, O Lord. And this is whose kingdom? Your kingdom. So he's, he's establishing that everything I have, everything I will have, everything belongs to you, and we are here to fulfill your kingdom purposes, not our purposes. So in other words, we're not building our kingdom on the earth, we're building your kingdom on the earth. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. Now, right there, he's establishing who's in charge. Who's in charge is God. God, you're the owner. I'm the manager. I'm the steward. Everything I have, my house, my car, my bank accounts, everything, it might have my name on it, but it belongs to you. Everything that I'm gifted to do to make money is because of you. If I can make money, it's because you anointed me. You gifted me to make money. And you gave me this gift because you want me to do something with that money that has purpose, that has some, some power to it, some, some, something that will make a difference with this money. You don't give me the money just so I can build my kingdom. You give me the money so I can build your kingdom. I'm going to say that again. You don't give me the money so I can build my kingdom. You give me the money so I can build your kingdom here on this earth. And in order to do that, I have to understand you're the owner, I'm the steward. Now, there's three levels of control that people operate when it comes to money. Number one, God 
is the owner. He's in control of all of your possessions. He, he owns it all. Number two, you're in control of all your possessions. And number three, the lowest level is your possessions are in control of you. How many people, their possessions control them? They're materialistic. They have to have. Their desire for other things, the lust of things. Enter in, chokes the word, and makes their life unfruitful. They get online. They, have, they shop online. They, what can I, what's online today that I don't have? What's, oh, look at those shoes. Whoa. But nobody has shoes like that. You know, we used to think we were spending a lot of money back in my day when you spent $30 on a pair of shoes. $30 won't even get you a flip-flop today. Now women's shoes, $300, $500, for a pair of nice shoes, really good shoes. Well, I got to have the best. God wants me to have the best. Not if you can't afford it, he doesn't. All right, so he's the owner. Now, the best way I can describe it is, is this. If God is the owner and I'm the steward, then that means that everything I buy, everything I invest in, everything that goes on in my financial life has to run through God before it's bought. So if I'm walking into a house and I'm looking for a house and I walk into a house, I really like this house. My wife really likes this. Oh, this is the house. This is the one. How many of you ever done? This is the, we got to have this. We got to have this. The first thing you got to do is go back. Wait, let's Pause for a moment. Don't let the salesperson talk you into something. Pause for a moment. Well, we'll be back with you in touch. Well, you better, you better be quick because there's a lot of people that want a house right now. Well, that's fine. If God wants us to have the house, we'll know when we're supposed to buy the house. If there's a whole bunch of people lining up bidding on the house, that's probably not my house. I'm not gonna get in a bidding war for something that I'm gonna pay way too much for and never be able to sell for that amount. You'll always make money in a house on the buy, never on the sale. How you buy it determines how much you make on the sale. And so right now, I don't know if I would buy a house. I'm sorry, real estate people, but I don't know if I would buy a house right now. It's too high. Interest rates are too high. A few years ago, I was buying houses. I bought houses and sold houses because you can make a lot of money on houses now that you couldn't make about 10 years ago. You buy when they're down and you sell them when they're high. But I always buy them based on this. What do you say, Lord? You're the owner. If this is going to be, is this your house? Do you want this house? I, don't, I know it looks nice, but God, what do you say? And there's a lot of times where God say, well, it looks nice, but no. That's too much. That's too expensive. That's beyond where you should go right now financially. All right, so then he says this. After he gives this gift, he says this in 1 Chronicles 29, 14. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. The best way I can describe this, if you have children, you can relate to this. Christmas time is coming. We're a couple months away from Christmas. And let's say your children are five years or younger, and you want them to have the experience of giving a gift to you. So you take them to a mall somewhere, and maybe you take a cousin or somebody with them, and you say, okay, I'm going to give you $30 or $20 and go buy a gift for me. Go buy a gift for me. Go buy a gift for mom and dad. And they go into the store and maybe their cousin's with them or somebody's with them. And they go in, they, they look around and they buy something. And then at, at Christmas time, they, they wrap it up in, in, in rudimentary wrapping and they hand it to you as if this is, look what I have done for you. <laughs> this is sometimes the way people think about tithing. Look what I'm doing to you, for you, God. And, and, 
And you know, you know, isn't that sweet? But I gave you the money to buy me the gift. Now, what would you think if you gave your child $50 to buy a gift for mom and dad, and they got in the store, and they looked around, and they thought, hmm, there's some candy over there. And oh, there's some music there. And and, oh, I could get an iPod. There's a few things I could get here. I I think I'm going to cut down the price of the gift to about $10. Because that'll leave me $40 for myself. And so then it comes time, Christmas time. They get you a little $10 gift instead of a $50 gift. And they present it to you like, look what I'm doing for you. And you'll, I give you 50 bucks. That's the best you could do with 50 bucks. And this is the way some people are with money. As soon as they get money in their hands, they start thinking, well, I don't want to tithe. Tithing, that's 10% of everything I make. Are you kidding me? It's my money and I want it now. (laughs) And the next thing you know, they can't tithe because they spend it on themselves. Is that any different? And then they think it's their money to do whatever they want with it because they're the owner. And that's the way people get in trouble financially. Colleen and I said, look, the tithe is holy. It belongs to God. We never touch that. As soon as we get paid, the first 10% of everything we make goes immediately to the house of God. It says, bring your first fruits to God and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake and open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. There's not room enough to receive it. Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. Everything you touch will be blessed. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. And then he says this. Most people don't get this in Malachi 3. And then he says, this is how you would discern between those who serve God and those who do not. Whoa. Read it. Read the end of Malachi 3. He said, this is how you discern between those who serve God and those who do not. Determine what they do with their tithe. Y'all all right out there, non-tithers? Y'all okay? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just, I don't, I don't agree with that. Well, I don't care whether you agree with it or not. It's in the word of God. Are you afraid you're going to lose them? Are you afraid you're going to lose people saying stuff like that? Are you kidding me? What would you lose? A non-tither? What would you lose? A person who sits in a chair? Y'all all right? person who doesn't serve, doesn't give, but just wants to come to church? We're here to do kingdom business. We're not here to just sit in chairs and go to church. We're here to do kingdom business. So we give the first fruits to you. God, and here's what we say, God, it all belongs to you. We're simply giving back to you what already belongs to you. That's the ownership principle. The third principle is the contentment principle. And this is where we struggle, especially in America. We are the consumer nation of consumer nations. If we stop consuming in this nation, the entire world goes into disaster economically. As soon as 9-11 happened and, 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 and the tragedy of America, George Bush gets on the screen and here's the first things out of mouth. I want all of you to go to Disney World and spend money because we can't stop spending money because our, our, our nation is built on consumerism. We live in a fiat currency. We don't have money. We just charge it, and we keep the the system going by buying stuff we can't afford. And we keep enslaving more and more people to debt so that then we, as the government, can control you. We can control you. Once you're in debt, you're under tribute. You are the lender. The borrower is, uh, I'm sorry, you're a borrower. The borrower is servant to the lender. You're a slave. 
Now, I'm not condemning you if you have debt, but what I'm trying to tell you is you don't want to live in debt. You want to continue to add more debt on top of your debt. You want to get out of debt. Would y'all agree with me? How many of you want to be debt free? Right? Well, debt free is, is like losing weight. It doesn't just happen. It has to be intentional. Would y'all agree? You don't just wake up one morning and you're debt and you're, you've lost a hundred pounds. You got to go after it. You got to be hard at it, which means you're going to have to learn how to be content. So Paul writes this, this is what he says in 1 Timothy 6, in verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and certainly we can carry nothing out. None of it goes with you. It's just a big pile that's going to burn. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. How many of you are content with food and clothing? Let me see your hand. Your food, you're content with, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. All you have is food and clothing, you're fine. No problem. Don't need a place to live. Don't need a bed to sleep on. Don't need a car to drive. Don't need, I just want food and clothing. No. Come on now. Let's be honest. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now here's the thing. I want you to, I want you to do this on your own private time. When you study, study biblical finance, if you study money scriptures in the New Testament, find me any scriptures in the New Testament that talk about how much God wants to make you prosper and have lots of money and have all kinds of money and stuff. It, 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 he's not against you prospering, but what you see in the New Testament is a warning after warning after warning from Paul, from, from, from Peter, from John, from James, from Jesus himself, warning people that are desiring to be rich. In fact, Jesus says it this way, it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven than to go, a camel to go through an eye of a needle. In other words, there has to be a major transformation. It doesn't mean you can't be rich. It just means that it's not easy to be rich and stay committed to Christ. What happens with people when money comes into their hands, it starts to steal their affections and their desires. And they enter in and it chokes the word and they become unfruitful. It gives you options you didn't have before. And so suddenly now where you used to go to church because you needed God, you don't need God because you, 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 you got money. I can do stuff now. I can go to the beach. I can go to Disneyland. I can fly to Europe. I can do whatever I want. So I just in church whenever, whenever I feel like it. And the next thing you know, money, unbeknownst to you, has taken you out of God. And you're now driven by money. So he's saying contentment is the number one principle that combats that. You have to learn to be content, which means that you have to ask yourself, do I really need this? Is this something that I, I, I want, I desire, or is it something I need? And do I need to do it? If I can't afford it, I can't pay for it, should I buy it? Should I buy it just because I have a credit card? Did y'all hear what I just said? Should I buy it just because I have a credit card? Because I can pay the payment. As soon as you start basing your life on payments, you're in trouble. God wants you to learn how to be content. So Colleen and I, we, when we started this church, we said, okay, we can't talk about money if we're not good with money. And we can't talk about uh, prospering and handling money if we don't handle money well. So that means that we can't live in a state where the bank tells us to live. We're gonna live with the state God tells us to live. 
The first house we bought as pastors of this church cost us $89,000. We built it from scratch for $89,000. We lived in it for five years. We sold it for $103,000. And then we bought another house. We built another house for $160,000 and sold it for $220,000. We lived in it for five years. Then we bought a house for $220,000 with a pretty large down payment. And we lived in it for 21 years. Until just last year, we, bought, we built another house. We lived in it for 21 years. During those 21 years, we grew financially, financially, financially. We grew, but we didn't buy another house because it enabled us to buy other houses that we could invest in and then resell. So that we wouldn't have to depend solely on our, on our uh, uh, economy here at the church. And we learned that if you live within your means, then you can have resources to invest. Amen. Did you hear what I just said? But if you're always living just for the moment and you're just trading off the future for the moment, you'll never have anything. And you don't want to be that way when you're old, have no generational wealth to hand down to your children and to help bless people and to give to people. You don't want to be one of these people that when you die, the church has to pay for your burial because you have nothing. Amen. It all comes with contentment, being content. All right. So I want you to think about this. How are you doing with that? When you look at your credit card bills every month, you can tell where a person is by just looking at their bills. When you look at all the things you purchase, all the things you buy, how content are you? Do you live within your means? Are you constantly buying stuff that's beyond you and you're just adding more payments, more debt to your lifestyle? Amen? The fourth principle is the wisdom principle. This is a big principle. And here's the, here's the scripture, Proverbs chapter 3. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Happy is the man, verse 13, who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of gold, her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Wisdom is, the Bible says, the principal thing. So I was talking to somebody one time and he, says, he said to me, you don't need more money, you need more wisdom. We always think, if I just have more money. No, you don't need more money if you can't handle the money you already have. What you need is more wisdom. And if you don't have wisdom, you have to go after it. You have to find people who have wisdom and listen to them and learn from them. Now, the number one place you find wisdom is the Bible. The Bible is the full of wisdom, all kinds of scripture in there that gives you wisdom. Every time you read the Bible, it helps you become wiser. But let me just give you a few just statements on wisdom, just, to, just some financial statements that you can think through. First of all, a thing about wisdom, admit what you don't know and get help. If you don't know, if you're not good with money, don't just stay there, get help. Go to the money that works class. Get that class in your, go to somebody that knows how to handle money. Don't go to somebody who's deep in debt and try to get financial wisdom from them. I know you're bankrupt, can you tell me how to get out of debt? Fools go to fools, wise people go to wise people. And by the way, there is no shortage of fools. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. There are only a few wise people. When you find one, latch on to them, amen? Secondly, invest more than you spend. Invest more than you spend. When you're thinking of money, think of it as this is something I have to steward. I need to make sure I'm investing. Number one investment for us and this is how we think, our number one investment is in the kingdom of God. We know that if we, the more money we put in the kingdom of God, the more we get God's word into the, into the world, the more we expand the kingdom, the more God puts his hand on our finances. We never ever, in the, in the, in the 
almost 40 years that, yeah, 40 years that we've been serving the Lord in ministry, all 40 years, in my lifetime, I've never not tithed. Neither has Colleen. No matter how difficult things go in our finances, we've never not tithed. Always give the first of everything to God. We always do that. The first 10% of everything we have always goes to the, to the church that we go to, the, the storehouse that we go to. Then we, we, we set a goal. We wanna give at least another 10%. At first, it started as two, and then three, and then four, and now it's 15%, another 10, 15% into missions, into the needy, into whatever we can give it to. Because the more we invest in God's kingdom, the more we know God will put his hand on our finances. Then we started thinking, okay, we also need to invest in real things. So we invested in, in, in real estate. We invested in the stock market. When the stock market looked like it was gonna go bad, we pulled out of the stock. We try to invest in things that we think can make money and we had savings and you have to pay taxes. So then what's left over is what you can use to live on. What we found is we're living on 40%, 50% of the money that we have because we're investing, giving and things like that. And what we found is when you start that way small, as you get, as you get more resource, that 50% is maybe 10 times what you ever made in your life. Did you hear what I just said? It just compounds. It's a wisdom principle. Don't fall for get-rich-quick schemes. Every time I turn on the internet, there's some get-rich-quick schemes. You know, sign up here and you're gonna make millions of dollars. And and I, I can't tell you how many, and by the way, can I just make a comment about that online? If you ever see somebody that uses my name or Pastor Johnson's name and says, I need you to give money to some project I'm, I'm asking you to give to online. It's a fake account. It's not, I'm never gonna go online and ask you for money. Never. Don't be foolish. There are people from Africa, people from, from, from Asia, people from all over the world that their whole living is hacking into personalities putting a fake account out there and then making some kind of nonprofit thing, making it look like there's, you know what their nonprofit is? Them. They are the nonprofit. They are the poor people that are starving to death in Ethiopia. Never, ever think that it's one of us doing that. We never do that online, never. If you ever see us asking for money online, it's not us. Just remember that. Any get rich quick scheme, anything like that. Never co-sign for something you're not prepared to pay for. Can you co-sign for me, mama? Can you co-sign? And then you can't pay it, and then mama's mad at you now, and then the relationship splits apart because you, you signed up for something that you can't, that you can't pay for. Uh, know the difference between strategic debt and consumer debt. That's huge. Strategic debt is you, buy, you're, you might borrow money, but you're borrowing money to buy something that's gonna increase in value, like a house. Consumer debt is you're borrowing money to buy something that's gonna decrease in value. That's, that's consumer debt. Never buy anything you're not both in agreement with in your marriage. Surround yourself with people who are wise with money, not a bunch of people that don't know what they're doing with money. These are just some principles that you use that are wisdom. All right, then finally the last one is the generosity principle. I knew it. I knew you were gonna talk about money. Talking about giving. Absolutely. I mean, Think about it. I'm not, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about giving to the church. I'm talking about just being a generous person. You know, I, I have learned that there is a lot of people that are not generous. Very stingy. Stingy people. 
You ever take people out to eat? You know, your friends, you're out eating, and, and the check comes, and they've just got alligator arms. I got it. You know what I'm saying? They love you to pay their bill. If you're really, really understanding money, you want to be generous. I, I love paying people's bills I, because the Bible says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I don't mind if somebody buys me a lunch, but I, I don't try to go out to lunch for somebody to buy me lunch. I don't call mama, you want to go out to eat? And you know mama's going to pay for it. <laughs> mama, let's take a vacation. Or daddy, let's go for a vacation. And you know somebody else is going to pay for it? That's stingy. Don't be stingy. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be stingy. Don't be stingy. Years ago, years ago, I heard somebody say this, and I, and I, re I realized, you know, in church, you got two kinds of people. You got givers, and you got takers. You got givers, and you got takers. Now, you understand, you don't build a church, a significant move of God, without givers, right? And there's, there, can I just tell you something? In this church, and I'm going to just commend you, in this church, there's a lot of givers. You're, there's a lot of givers. And we've navigated all kinds of economies with, with, with this church. In 32 years, this church has been going for 32 years. In 32 years, the income of this church has been on a steady incline for 32 years. No matter what's happened in the economy, no matter what's happened in society, we've never done this and we've never done this in 32 years. 32 years. Now that's... That's, I, that's pretty dependable. Now, what that says is the people that come to victory, generally speaking, get this principle of generosity. They get it. No matter what's going on in the world, they stop being, they don't, they don't start hoarding and holding on and, and collecting for themselves. During the typical downturns, about 10% of churches go out of business. They say right now during COVID, 200 churches a week went out of business. Financially, they went out. Because the people stopped giving. And the, and the reason they stopped giving is because they're afraid of what's coming. As soon as you react to what's afraid and you start becoming close-handed, that's when you start to go down. Amen. That's when it's all on you now. What happens to the economy is on you instead of on God with you. I don't know about you, but I've learned this. I, here's, what, here's, here's the psalmist, and I'll kind of wrap it up with this. Here's what he says. He says in Psalm 37, this is David saying this, verse 21. The wicked borrow... And do not repay. But the righteous give generously. Now, now what does that say to student loans? Y'all are right out there, all you student loan folks? The wicked borrow to go to school and they want somebody else to pay for it. Y'all are right out there? Of course you want somebody else to pay for it. Because you're wicked. Wicked people want other people to pay their bills. Wicked people want government to bail them out. Wicked people want other taxpayers to pay their... Wicked people think that way. You're not wicked. You're God's chosen generation. You're God's people. If you borrow money, you repay it. You're God's... I don't care what the government does. I don't care what they promise, politicians promise. You don't look for them to bail you out. You do. You honor your word. If you borrow something, you pay it back. You pay it back. The wicked borrow 
and they do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, meaning that they don't, not all people are blessed by the Lord, but those he curses will be destroyed. Does the Lord bless and curse? Yes, he does. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young, and now I'm old. I can relate to that scripture. <laughs> Yet I have never, ever seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. They are always generous and lend freely, and their children will be a blessing. The most fulfilled families, the happiest families, the most solid families, the families that make it through downturns in the economy, the families that have God's hand on them are families that are generous. And if you don't have a lot of money, you should give what you have. Like if you have a house, you let people live in your house if you need to. You do whatever you need to do to just be a generous person. Amen. And the more, here's what I've learned about God. Here's what I've learned about God. You cannot. And I want to reemphasize this as I close. You cannot outgive God. You cannot do it. In my lifetime, I've given away, I think, seven different cars. I've given away a house, my house. I gave it away last year, two years ago. My house that I've paid for years, I gave it away. And I gave away my entire retirement income when I was 48 years of age. Lots of money that I've been saving and investing for years. I did it for the, to help build this building, but I also did it because I felt like I needed to know, do I really trust God enough to start all over again at 48? And I've been young, and now I'm old. And every time I give like that, I'll say, what do you think about that, God? He says, you think that's something? Watch what I can do for you now. He says, I trust you with that. I know I can trust you with more money. If you're a giver, you're generous, you're able to share with people, you will never, listen to me, be without. You will never be begging. You will not be living paycheck to paycheck. You will not be going bankrupt. You will not be constantly going out uh, and trying to figure out how you're gonna make your money. God will put his hand on you and he will prosper you. I don't give to get something. I give because I love God. How many of you love God? I don't give to get something. I've just learned that the more generous you are, the more God is generous with you. And I, no matter how hard I try to give away everything, God just keeps giving me back stuff. Now tell me if this is not true. At the end of the year, when you, this is not true. At the end of the year, you go into your closet, you gotta get, you know, get rid of some stuff. You're gonna give it to Goodwill. Tell me if it's not true. You have, you have piles of clothes, right? And you go and you give them to Goodwill or whoever. You give them some charity. You pile them up. You take them over and you give them. I don't need these anymore. I'm going to give them to people that, that need these. And you give them away. And tell me if it's not true. Next Christmas, you go and your, crowd, your pile is bigger than next Christmas. Yes. Got to stack all these things up and give them away. I don't have room enough to receive it all. I have no room in the house for what God wants to do in my life financially. If I'm generous, if I'm wise, if I'm content, if God is the owner, if I'm one with my spouse, those principles never fail, never fail. And you say, well, I don't know about that. I've seen them not fail. I've seen them fail. I've done some of those things. I didn't say do some of them, do all of them. All of them, you will not fail. 
I've been young and I'm, now I'm old. I've never seen any righteous person that follows these principles fail and beg for bread. So let's pray right now. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think about these things and I want you to take stock of your own financial life and ask yourself, how am I doing with all these things? And the good news is this, no matter how bad you've been with money, now you have some tools to correct that. Now you have some principles to put into your life. And when you put these principles into your life and you say, God, you're first in everything I do. I'm not gonna do things on my own without God. I'm gonna start you know, being diligent, wise, generous. Those are the kind of things that God will put his hand on. So Father, you see our people right now. All the people that are watching us online, everybody that's watching us, everybody that's participating in our church today, all of our campuses. Today, God, you see our financial condition. And I'm praying right now that, first of all, you would forgive us, any of us here that may have just been unwise with money, unfaithful with money. Any, if, you, if you've been that way, just repent to him right now. Just say, God, forgive me for just being unfaithful with money, being, just doing my, think my own thing with money. I just repent, Jesus. And God, as you see us in our heart to forgive, would you also help us now to have the, 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 the courage, the confidence, the wherewithal, the intentionality to now take these principles and put them into our lives. And I pray, God, that as, as we do put these things into our lives, that you'll put your hand on us. You'll put your hand on our financial condition and, and you will begin to take us slowly and steadily right out of debt into a place of abundance, blessing, generosity, all the things that you intended for us to live in. You'll make our families no longer be ruled over by money, but our families have, have this money thing under control. And I pray, God, that you're gonna help our people, and this is a, this is a big prayer, get out of debt, totally out of debt. As we go into this uncertain future, get out of debt. I pray that you'll give them the strength, the, the, the disciplines, all the things that are necessary to get them completely debt-free so that when, when tough times come, we're in a better position to handle those tough times, God. Now put your hand on this church. Put your hand on the people that are watching us and begin to bless us right now. Bless the church. Bless the people that have been so generous, so faithful over the years. Bless them now. I pray the blessing of the Lord over their finances. Multiply the blessing over them right now. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. All right, God bless you.